0: The views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin and Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. I with Aldous Tyler for Friday, October 30th, 2020. With election day, literally this upcoming Tuesday, we are looking at some phenomenal news stories when it comes to the early vote in this country. There have been record early turnouts across the country. In fact, as of two days ago. The New York Times reported that more than 64 million Americans had already voted and that about half of them are in the roughly 12 competitive states that will ultimately decide who wins the Electoral College. But basically, we're looking at a tremendous, tremendous early voter turnout. Let's dig into that, though. What does that mean exactly? So in 2016, we had... About 135 million total votes cast. That's both early vote with absentee as well as votes on Election Day. 135 million total votes uh, divided up between the Republicans and the Democrats and the Greens and the Libertarians. Something people don't seem to remember. And um, the Greens get an awful lot of heat, but the Greens only got... Just a little bit above 1 million of those votes. Over 4 million went to the Libertarian ticket. Um, but in any case, digressing, 135 million total votes in 2016. Right now, we have 64.3 million votes already cast as of two days ago in early voting, which is, hang on for a minute, a little to find this, that is about 47%. Of all of the votes cast on the in the election of 2016, that is a phenomenal number. Um, and it's likely to just get bigger over the next couple of days. But the fact is, we have to be very wary of how this turns out, because because you see, thanks to how things break down with people who believe the pandemic is real versus people who happen to be democratic or Republican, et cetera, in their overall uh, political viewpoint. um, It looks like there's going to be probably a large surge of voting happening on election day by Republican voters. Um, So let's dig into this here. We're going to take a look and see what states have had the most turnout and how. Now, Early votes in very populated, highly populated Texas, which leans Republican but's considered competitive this year because of its growing populations of people of color, have already surpassed 80% of the state's 2016 total turnout. Now, let me stop and make sure to um, give you the idea of why this is significant. In 2016, all right. <clears throat> Roughly 10 million people in Texas voted. Um, Actually, no, I'm sorry. Roughly nine and a half million. And right now, 7.3, 7.4 million votes have been uh, already tallied in Texas. Now, the reason this is very, very significant is because those votes are overwhelmingly Democratic because, again, like I said, most of the people who uh, believe the pandemic is serious happen to also be. Um, In the Democratic column when it comes to the presidency, I'm not saying they're Democratic voters all the time. I'm saying that overall, they're not voting for Trump and they are putting their voices uh, behind the only shot to really get rid of Trump this time, which is sadly Joe Biden. But nonetheless, that means that if you are voting against Trump you are most likely uh, going to be an early voter, and 82% of the 2016 total for presidency has already come in. That, to me, shows that there's a good likelihood that Florida is, not Florida, pardon me, that Texas is going to wind up flipping um, blue this year. So keep your eye on Texas. That's that's amazing. Uh, Speaking of Florida, as I said a moment ago, um, they have had 63%. Of total 2016 votes come in so far. Um, over 6 million votes in Florida. Uh, and, and that's, again, over 63% is an amazing total. Basically, if you're looking at... Okay, let me, let me put it this way. Yes, early voting has been really promoted this year. And the pandemic has people looked at looking at it like never before. But um, in past elections, early voting has made you know, 5%, maybe 10% of the elect- electoral total uh, in most states, if that. I'm not talking about you, Oregon. I know you're always a vote-by-mail state. Um, but, I mean, to see that early voting has now been jumping into, you know, percentages that are greater than 20% is amazing. So if you're seeing a state that's 40% or better early vote already, that is a tremendous um A tremendous indicator that we may be looking at that state uh, potentially flipping blue, at the very least, uh, for this election. Um, So, with Florida, 63%. mm, That's a strong indicator. Again, we'll have to see once uh, Election Day happens. But keep in mind, I mean, there are plenty of people who are going to vote for Biden who are simply going to show up at the polls on Election Day anyway. Just because, I mean, that's how you vote. Uh, And that's how you've always voted. So a lot of people are going to do that. So, uh, again, Texas, Florida looking very interesting. North Carolina has 67% of its 2016 vote total already in an early voting. Over 3.1 million votes in North Carolina. That's huge. Again, probably blue this year. Georgia. 66% 66% of the 2016 votes already in play, 2.7 million right there. Um, so keep your eye on Georgia. Georgia might vote for the Democratic candidate overall in its electoral college this year for the first time in a long time. Um, now, Ohio is where you start going, huh. So Ohio has only had 39% so far of its early voting Um uh, meeting the 2016 total so in other words um basically of the t- total 2016 votes in ohio 39 percent of that total has come in so far in early voting so that's one of those where you go yeah um because again a lot of your pro-biden folks are voting early um so again we're looking at uh ohio we'll see what happens. Uh, Election day very much could uh, could play it out, but that one is way too close to call just by looking at this. Um, now we go back uh, just a little bit north of Ohio to Michigan. Michigan's got 43% of its 2016 total in already. And that's, again, I was saying the threshold I was personally putting up there is 40%. I believe 40% is significant. That's where you can say, wow, that's looking really good for uh, Biden and not so good for Trump. So, uh, again, Michigan's close. At being at 43 uh, percent, I know Ohio is at 39 percent. So I'm going to say that uh, basically if you're looking between 35 and 45, that uh, it's, it's really way too close to call um, at this point, just from looking at the early vote um, and such. So I'm going to say Ohio is too close to call, but really close to the margin. Michigan is leaning Biden, but still too close to call uh, as far as like how the early votes are coming. Um, Pennsylvania. Moving on over to Pennsylvania, Um, they only have 28% of their total 2016 votes in so far. So not sure, not sure how Biden's doing there. I would have to say that unless something uh, swings very seriously in Biden's favor on election day, Pennsylvania might not go Biden. Um, So that's interesting. Uh, Now, uh, moving completely across the country to Arizona, 60%. Of Arizona's total 2016 votes have already been cast. Arizona is almost certainly going blue at this point. I'm really excited to see what happens there. Um, now, moving over to some place you might be more familiar with Wisconsin. Over forty-five percent of the total 2016 votes have been in, so that puts us on that outside of that range. I'm thinking we're going for Biden here in Wisconsin uh, this time uh, around. That we're going to go for the Democratic candidate and uh, and help kick Trump to the curb. That would be awesome uh, because we're just outside that margin at forty-five percent. Um, so we'll see. Uh, close though; it's still close. Uh, Minnesota, our neighbor there, is at forty percent. Of 2016's vote totals. So they're right there. They're dead in the middle. Who knows where they're going? Um, If you're going by early vote totals alone, they are completely tossed up. Um, Iowa. Going down to Iowa here, we have 48% of the vote total. That's good. That's pretty solidly. Again, the way I'm figuring it, that's pretty solidly saying that Biden... May come out pretty good there in Iowa, um, which is great uh, that, that Iowa often turns red. So that's that's good to see Nevada going way out west of Nevada. Sixty six percent of the total votes in 2016 have already been cast early. That's phenomenal. That's uh, I'm, I'm thinking Nevada is definitely going blue this year. Um, now, New Hampshire. Um, very interesting. And I think part of it is it looks like New Hampshire had a very short period for early voting, but they only had 18 percent of their total 2016 votes come in. So I'm, I'm thinking New Hampshire may go Trump. i um, not sure. Anyway, those are the battleground states now of the states that you pretty much expect Biden to win. um you know, you have California coming in at 48 percent, New Jersey at 63, Washington state at 67, Virginia at 49 percent, um, Colorado, 62 percent, Massachusetts, 50 percent, Oregon. You guys always vote by mail. I'm not sure even why this is we're bothering tallying you, but 58 percent is already in um, New Mexico. Yeah, 71 percent. Um, what's a little concerning is before I get into that, actually, Rhode Island, 43 percent, Hawaii, 60 percent, Maine, 48 percent. So, again, all these percents I'm giving out, in case you hadn't caught, are the total percent of these 2016 totals. So, in other words, already this year, Massachusetts has 1.7 million votes in, and that's just about exactly half of the total amount of votes cast in 2016's presidential election. Um, What's a little concerning is is that New York, the state of New York only has 5% of their total, but it looks like they have a really truncated early vote. I don't know what's going on in the state of New York, but it looks like they just started their early vote. So um, New York might not have that much of a chance to vote early. Uh, and again, yeah, they're expected to go, uh, go Biden this election, but that's just not, that's not healthy. Um, you're basically telling people that they have a very narrow window in which they can make sure they won't catch coronavirus and still be able to vote. That's I don't like that state of New York. Do better. Um, Connecticut also has a relatively narrow window, not quite as narrow as New York's. They only have 30% of their votes in, so uh, total votes from 2016 in uh, so far. Um, the one that caught my attention, though though the big one that caught my attention was Illinois. Illinois has had early voting going since late September, and there's only 32% of their total 2016 votes in. Now, Illinois has a lot of, they're a relatively high electoral college state, and 32%, if you remember what I was saying with the, uh, the battleground states, is well under that margin where I was really thinking they might go Trump if they're a battleground state. They're not. But 32% at this point is concerning. It makes you wonder if when the heavy turnout for Trump on Election Day happens from the rural end of Illinois, uh, could we actually see a very big surprise? Could Illinois flip? Mm, We'll have to see. Now, amongst the states where Trump is basically slotted to win... It's interesting to note that there are an awful lot of early votes uh, in some of these. Tennessee has had 65% of the total of 2016 votes that it had uh, already come in. Now, I, I would be surprised to see Tennessee go for Biden versus Trump. But you know what? Just like with Illinois, um, the percent of early votes coming in indicates that there's a strong Democratic push in that state um, in this case. So I, I, whereas with Illinois, the lack of it made, made me wonder uh, with Tennessee, you've got a strong push of Democrats trying to vote early. Um, and so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, Tennessee might flip blue. That would be pretty amazing. Um, Indiana's at 39 we're, percent. We're not. I, Mike Pence is from Indiana to start with. But secondly, in 2016, I happened to drive through Indiana not long at all before Election Day. And uh, I could tell you right then that Indiana was going to go Trump. It was just, you know, miles and miles and miles of nothing but Trump signs, uh, even in the bigger cities. It was just crazy. So uh, Indiana, probably solid Trump. Kentucky, though is interesting. Kentucky's got over half of their total of 2016 votes in 52% and they had a very narrow window for doing so. Their vote totals came in, um, from looks like, uh, early to mid October. And then they stopped. So in a very short window, 52% of the 2016 vote total came in for Kentucky. Keep your eye on that. That's interesting. Um, South Carolina, 43%. Uh, you know, again, this is a solidly considered a solid Trump state. I wouldn't I would have to say the threshold here to watch for is 50% or more uh, to be really interested, which is why Kentucky has me interested. But South Carolina, eh. Louisiana, 37%. Eh. Um, Missouri, 19%. So, yeah, probably not. don't have anything to worry about there. Trump, um, Arkansas, 44%. Again, probably safe, Trump. Utah 40% of total 2016 votes again Trump's probably got Utah Kansas 31% yeah we don't have to worry about Kansas for them uh Nebraska 43% again Trump's probably got them uh now Montana is interesting Montana has 70% of the total of 2016 votes in and you know ready to go that I would watch Montana. Montana might flip blue, even though they're supposed to be a likely Trump state. I'm this or these early vote results are interesting. On the other hand, you have Oklahoma, fourteen <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, Oklahoma is is not going to vote Biden. They're just they're not. I'm sorry to say it. Sorry, Oklahoma. And for you Democrats and uh, and even more liberal and progressive people in Oklahoma, I feel for you. I do. But you're stuck in a very, very red state, presidentially. Um, North Dakota, 47%, probably Trump. Uh, South Dakota, 41%, probably Trump. (laughs) Now, um, then you come to the states where there's absolutely no chance that Biden's going to win. Alabama has had 7% early vote. Mississippi, 5% early vote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, West Virginia, 15% early vote. Idaho, 18% early vote. Those states are not going anywhere as far as Trump's column is concerned. He's got those locked down, no problem. Um, Alaska, 29%. That's actually kind of surprising for Alaska, but again, we're pretty still pretty much looking at them being in Trump's column. Wyoming, 39%, pretty solidly Trump. So what we're looking at there are a few states that, thanks to the early voting, look like they may buck the trends. Um, I'm a little concerned about Illinois. Uh, that may go into Trump's column because of how little participation there's been so far. Um, I'm very interested in uh, Montana, uh, which looks very, uh, and Tennessee, both of which look very possibly like they might go into Biden's column for the first time in quite some time in the case of Tennessee. Um, and then the... the uh, the various uh, battleground states, they're all very, uh, very interesting looking. Um, the one that I uh, am worried the most about. Um, well, there's the two that I'm worried the most about. First of all, one's New Hampshire, but New Hampshire, you got what, three electoral votes? Sorry, you're not that much to worry about. Um, but Pennsylvania you got a lot of electoral votes, and you've only got 28% of your early vote in, and you don't have the narrow window of New York State. I don't know what's going on there, guys, but unless a lot of Biden voters show up on Election Day, Pennsylvania may very well flip red. Well, not flip red. They were Trump last time, too. They may very well be Trump again. Uh, we'll have to see. So... um What I've just done is thrown a whole lot of analysis and numbers at you, and I apologize if that kind of made your eyes glaze over. But the deal is this. We've never seen early voting like this, ever. Um, What's really clear about this is that um, in the um, five battleground states that report party registration, nearly 2 million more registered Democrats have voted than Republicans so far. So that's why I'm saying When you're seeing high, high participation of early voting, that really does well uh, for Biden and not so good for Trump. So um, we'll have to see how it all pans out. But in the meantime, just remember, um, if you haven't voted by the time you're hearing this, well, please show up on Election Day. Stay safe. Um, wear your mask, stay socially distanced, watch out for idiots with guns. Um, but get your voice out there because you know what, even as much as some of these early voting things look encouraging, nothing, nothing can be taken for granted. And your voice, your voice matters. Uh, especially if you're in the, uh, the 12 most likely States to, uh, To swing this thing. Um, And let me just be really clear. If you live in Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Nevada, or New Hampshire. You're in a state where it is not even remotely assured which column you're going to land in. I'm afraid your vote is one of those That is highly prized by the political contenders, but that also means that you have uh, a lot of additional responsibility with it. I wish it was otherwise, but that is the case. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, you may not have heard about this, but that's one of the reasons I'm bringing it to you, being the cure for the common media and all. Um, Chile, the country in South America, not Chile the thing you eat, C-H-I-L-E, is celebrating their voters' decision to scrap their constitution and start over. That's right. As detailed on October 26th at uh, NPR.org, It started as a ripple anger over higher subway prices, but a growing wave of protests followed. And now people in Chile have voted overwhelmingly to throw out their country's uh, constitution from uh, back when Pinochet ruled them in the 1980s and create a new document under which to live. Nearly 80% of the voters chose to form a new constitution. Now, the result threw Chile into a huge celebration. One year after Santiago's streets were jammed by protesters, they were filled Sunday with revelers ecstatic over the results of a national plebiscite. There were music and fireworks, signs declared, "Renace Chile, Chile reborn. Now, NPR's Philip Reeves uh, reported, Many Chileans, see this as a turning point, an opportunity to end social inequalities that led to last year's mass protests. They also voted to elect an assembly of 155 citizens to write a new constitution. Chileans have many demands, including the right to better pensions, health care and education, and greater recognition for indigenous people. More than seven and a half million voted, um, which uh, sets a record for voter participation in Chile since at least 1988. Um, Chile's population was recently estimated at more than 18 million people, up from an estimated 12.8 million in 1988. But still, I mean, that's a lot of people. Now, having this vote was the most prized concession that protesters won from President Sebastian Piñera and other leaders last fall. Weeks of protests over economic inequality forced Piñera to agree to the move after his efforts at reform, including raising the minimum wage and pensions, failed to appease demonstrators. The first protests last October were small as students jumped turnstiles to avoid the higher subway fare. After incidents of arson and violence, the president deployed the military to the streets, saying he would not bow down to an enemy. But the sight of troops in the streets sparked new anger, particularly among older Chileans, for whom it recalled the country's troubled past under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. The protests in response also jarred the conceptions of Chile as one of South America's most stable countries. At least 30 people died in the unrest, and thousands more were injured. Damages to train systems, businesses, and other targets were estimated in the billions of dollars. So, let's put that into perspective now. All right, we're a much more populous, much larger country than Chile with, uh, frankly, uh, businesses and uh, infrastructure that are probably worth more monetarily to fix, If we want to have the chance to really change things, to truly change things, protests, they're the way to go. I mean, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not calling right now for everybody to get out in the street, but I'm telling you right now that when people do, it makes change. And now what kind of protests are we looking at that do it? Well, unfortunately as it says, at least 30 people died in Chile in the protests. Thousands more were injured. Their train stations, which believe me in Chile is a major thing. The the, the This is how a lot of people get around in their, in their cities the, were uh, damaged. Businesses were damaged. Um, and basically, as it said, billions of dollars worth of damage in a country as relatively small as Chile population wise and economically. Um, and that's what it took. That's what it took to have um, the president there, the um, President uh, Sebastian Pinera, to try to start giving concessions. Pinera was like, well, we'll raise the minimum wage and, and we'll raise pensions. Is, is that good enough? Will you stop protesting? The protesters said, no, no, it's not good enough. So finally, finally, the government there said, you know what? we will allow you to have a vote this coming October October 2020 where you can vote to say if you want to change the constitution of this country if you want to if you want to really change things you're going to have to do it via the constitution and you're going to have to vote for it and then they got out they voted and almost 80% of them voted yes and as a consequence over 150 Chilean citizens just Normal Chileans are going to have a chance to actually change the very structure of how their government is. Period. And they earned it through protest. They earned it through what pearl-clutching people here call violent protests. Oh my gosh, those never achieve anything, really. Ask a Chilean if it achieves nothing. Go ahead. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, um, 2020, of course, has been the year that just keeps on giving when it comes to things you don't want to hear about in the news. Um, I'm afraid this next one is one of those scientists have found evidence that frozen methane deposits in the Arctic Ocean, known as the sleeping giants of the carbon cycle, have started to be released over a large area of the continental slope off the East Siberian coast. That's right. The Guardian uh, UK uh, on theguardian.com had their uh, article entitled Sleeping Giant Arctic Methane Deposits Starting to Release, Scientists Find. Uh, In that article, they say high levels of the potent greenhouse gas have been detected down to a depth of 350 meters in the Laptev Sea near Russia, prompting concern among researchers that a new climate feedback loop may have been triggered that could accelerate the pace of global heating. The slope sediments in the Arctic contain a huge quantity of frozen methane and other gases known as hydrates. Methane has a warming effect 80 times stronger than carbon dioxide over 20 years. The United States Geological Survey has previously listed Arctic hydrate destabilization as one of the four most serious scenarios for abrupt climate change. The international team on board the Russian research ship RV Academic Keldysh said most of the bubbles were currently dissolving in the water, but methane levels at the surface were four to eight times what they would normally be expected, and this was venting into the atmosphere. Swedish scientist Orion Gustafsson of Stockholm University, in a satellite call from the vessel, said, At this moment... There is unlikely to be any major impact on global warming, but the point is that this process has now been triggered. This East Siberian slope methane hydrate system has been perturbed and the process will be ongoing. The scientists, who were part of a multi-year international shelf study expedition, stressed their findings were preliminary. The scale of methane releases will not be confirmed until they return, analyze the data, and have their studies published in a peer-reviewed journal. But the discovery of potentially destabilized slope-frozen methane raises concerns that a new tipping point has been reached that could increase the speed of global heating. The Arctic is considered ground zero in the debate about the vulnerability of frozen methane deposits in the ocean. With the Arctic temperature now rising more than twice as fast as the global average, the question of when, or even whether, they will be released into the atmosphere has been a matter of considerable uncertainty in climate computer models. The 60 member team on the Academic Keldish believe they are the first to observationally confirm that methane release is already underway across a wide area of a slope that's about 600 kilometers offshore. At six monitoring points over a slope area 150 kilometers in length and 10 kilometers wide, they saw clouds of bubbles released from the sediment. At one location on the Laptev sea slope, at a depth of about 300 meters, they found methane concentrations up to 1,600 nanomoles per liter, which is 400 times higher than would be expected if the sea and the atmosphere were in equilibrium. Igor Similatov of the Russian Academy of Sciences, who is the chief scientist on board, said the discharges were significantly larger than anything found before. The discovery of actively releasing shelf slope hydrates is very important and unknown until now, he said. This is a new page. Potentially, they can have serious climate consequences, but we need more study before we can confirm that. The most likely cause of the instability is an intrusion of warm Atlantic currents into the East Arctic. This Atlantification, as it's called, is driven by human-induced climate disruption— The latest discovery potentially marks the third source of methane emissions from the region. Uh, uh, Semilatov, who has been studying this area for two decades, has previously reported the gas as being released from the shelf of the Arctic, the biggest of any sea. For the second year in a row, his team have found crater-like pockmarks in the shallower parts of the Laptive Sea and East Siberian Sea that are discharging bubble jets of methane, which is reaching the sea surface at levels tens to hundreds of times higher than normal. This is similar to the craters and sinkholes reported from inland Siberian tundra earlier this autumn. The temperatures in Siberia were 5 degrees centigrade higher than average from January to June this year, an anomaly that was made at least 600 times more likely by human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide and methane. Last winter's sea ice melted unusually early, and this winter's freeze has yet to begun, already a later start than any time on record. Ladies and gentlemen, again, we're keeping an eye on this story because this is unprecedented stuff and it does need to be peer-reviewed. But we have to start truly addressing global uh, heating, global warming before we hit too many of these tipping points. Or, well, when you hit too many tipping points, you tip over. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. And we're back, TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, Quora Magazine had an interesting article uh, this week. Apparently, emerging evidence is suggesting that the brain encodes abstract knowledge in the same way that it represents positions in space. That's hinting at a more universal theory of cognition, of how, of how thinking works. Uh, Jordana Sepulowitz In uh, Quantum Magazine, uh, in the article, The Brain Maps Out Ideas and Memories Like Spaces, says, We humans have always experienced an odd and oddly deep connection between the mental worlds and physical worlds we inhabit, especially when it comes to memory. We're good at remembering landmarks and settings, and if we give our memories a location for context, hanging onto them becomes easier. To remember long speeches, the ancient Greek and Roman orators imagined wandering through memory palaces full of reminders. Modern memory contest champions still use that technique to place, as they put it, long lists of numbers, names, and other pieces of information. As the philosopher Immanuel Kant put it, the concept of space serves as the organizing principle by which we perceive and interpret the world, even in abstract ways. Uh, Kim Steichenfield, a neuroscientist at the British artificial intelligence company DeepMind, said, Our language is riddled with spatial metaphors for reasoning and for memory in general. In the past few decades, research has shown that for at least two of our faculties, memory and navigation, those metaphors may have a physical basis in the brain, a small Seahorse-shaped structure, the hippocampus, is essential to both of these functions, and evidence has started to suggest that the same coding scheme, a grid-based form of representation, may underlie both of them. Recent insights have prompted some researchers to propose that this same coding scheme can help us navigate other kinds of information, including sights, sounds, and abstract concepts. The most ambitious suggestions even venture that these grid codes could be the key to understanding how the brain processes all details of general knowledge, perception, and memory. Now, back, nineteen fifty-three, September first, to be exact, uh, Henry Molaison, a twenty-seven-year-old man, the world would come to know as Patient H.M., went under the knife in a risky experimental bid to cure a debilitating case of epilepsy. A neurosurgeon removed the hippocampus and surrounding tissues from deep within patient H.M., uh, Henry Mollison's brain, alleviating some of his seizures, but inadvertently leaving him a permanent amnesiac. Until his death, more than half a century later, H.M. couldn't encode new memories, not what he'd had for breakfast, nor the most recent news headline, nor the identity of the stranger he'd been introduced to just a few minutes earlier. H.M.'s story, though tragic, revolutionized scientists' understanding of the role of the hippocampus uh, in the brain and how it organizes memory. Years later, another hippocampus-centered revolution transpired and earned its pioneers a Nobel Prize. The discoveries, decades apart, of two types of cells, which made it clear that the hippocampal region's fundamental functions included not just memory, but also navigation and the representation of two-dimensional spaces. The first of these came in 1971, when researchers uncovered a Uh, what they call place cells, which essentially fire to indicate one's current location. John O'Keefe, a neuroscientist at University College London, and his colleagues monitored the brain activity of freely roaming rats and observed that some of their neurons fired only when they were in specific parts of their cages. Some became active as a rat sniffed around, say, its enclosure's northeast corner, but otherwise remained quiet. Others fired in the cage's center. That is, the cells encoded a sense of place, uh, you are here, if you will, and together they created a map of the entire space within the brain. When that rat was put in a different cage or room, by the way, these place cells remapped, encoding different local positions. Now these findings inspired a proposal that the hippocampus might be creating and storing cognitive maps—an idea first put forth by psychologist Edward Tolman in the 1940s. By the way, to explain how rats could suss out new shortcuts to rewards in mazes. Um, but anyway, these cognitive maps uh, were well beyond spatial ones. At the very least, the hippocampus seemed like a promising place to start looking for hints of such maps, though. That work eventually led a then-married pair of scientists at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology by the name of Maybrit Moser and Edvard Moser to direct their attention to the uh, interhinal cortex located just next door to the hippocampus. The region provides major inputs to the hippocampus and is also one of the first areas of the brain to deteriorate in Alzheimer's disease, which affects both navigation and memory. There, the researchers found what they called grid cells, which experts now think may be the most compelling candidate for cognitive mapmakers. Unlike the place cells, grid cells do not represent particular locations. Instead, they form a coordinate system that's independent of location. As a result, they're popularly known as the brain's GPS. Each grid cell fires at a regularly spaced position, which form a hexagonal pattern. Imagine the floor of your bedroom is tiled with regular hexagons, all the same size, and each hexagon is divided into six equilateral triangles. As you walk across the room, one of your grid cells fires every time you reach a vertex of any of those triangles. Different sets of grid cells form different grids, grids with a larger or smaller hexagons, grids oriented in other directions, grids offset from one another together. These grid cells map every spatial position in an environment, and any particular location is represented by a unique combination of grid cells firing patterns. The single point where various grids overlap tells the brain where the body must be. Now, this kind of grid network or code constructs a more intrinsic sense of space than the place cells do. While the place cells provide a good means of navigating where the landmarks and other meaningful locations to provide spatial information are, grid cells provide a good means of navigating in the absence of such external cues. In fact, researchers think that grid cells are responsible for what's known as path integration, the process by which a person can keep track of where he or she is in space, how far she's traveled from some starting point, and in which direction, while you know, blindfolded, for example. Jacob Belmond, a cognitive neuroscience uh, neuroscientist affiliated with the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig and the Kavli Institute for Systems Neuroscience in Norway, said, The idea is the grid code could therefore be some sort of metric or coordinate system. You can basically measure distances with this kind of code. Moreover, because of how it works, that coding scheme can uniquely and efficiently represent a lot of information. And not just that. Since the grid network is based on relative relations, it could, at least in theory, represent not only a lot of information, but a lot of different types of information, too. Perhaps nature arrived at just such a solution to enable the brain to represent using grid cells any structured relationship from maps of word meanings to maps of future plans now Stackenfield said we've been thinking about how the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex machinery could have a more general purpose. It's a really powerful idea that you can have a grid cell representation of structure in general and apply it more rapidly to new situations. That in turn would allow one to behave more efficiently and learn a lot faster. Since researchers usually could not take direct measurements of individual neurons with their test subjects, they had to get clever with their methodology. In 2010 for instance, neurosi- pardon, neuroscientists figured out a certain kind of signal to look for in functional magnetic resonance imaging that fMRI scans of the brain as an indirect signature of grid selectivity. This hexadirectional signal emerges in subjects navigating a virtual environment. As it turns out, it also characterizes other tasks, some spatial, some not so much. One of the earliest examples came with behavior that fell somewhere between the two, the navigation of visual space. When monkeys with their heads fixed in place tracked images with just their eyes, researchers found evidence of grid cell activity in the entorhinal cortex. More recent work in humans has uncovered the same hexadirectional signature, and some experiments have even pinpointed other, more direct properties of the grid code already observed in physical navigation tasks. Similar principles may also guide how the brain encodes time. The hippocampus already has been found to contain place cells that also behave as time cell neurons in certain situations, activating to indicate successive moments in time rather than successive positions in space. Rats, for example, would run through a maze in which one section involved trotting in place on a wheel or treadmill for some predetermined number of seconds before continuing onwards. During the interval when the rats ran in place, their actual location held constant. The cells fired in their hippocampus to track their temporal progression. Some neurons were active for the first few seconds, others for the next few, and so on. This finding brings time as a different dimension into the equation. More recently, work published in Nature last summer turned up evidence for a coding system that uniquely represents time in the context of memories or experiences. A team of researchers, led by the Mosers, uncovered a coding scheme for time that spanned multiple scales, from seconds to hours. Although no explicit link has yet been drawn between temporal organization and grid cells, scientists have seen hints of a connection. Grid cells signal elapsed time in rats running on treadmills, for instance. Now, there's much, much more to it, of course, but basically, if the brain can map out space and time... Uh, at time being such an abstract concept, uh, in using these grid cells, then the supposition is that these grid cells can be used and probably are used to map out just about any other form of memory. Look into it more, though, if you're interested. Again, the article I was uh, checking a lot of this from is The Brain Maps Out Ideas and Memories Like Spaces out of Quantum Magazine by Jordana Sepulowicz. And that's going to wrap it up for TMI with Aldous Tyler for this week. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure to get out to those polls if you haven't already. Um, There may be some time left for early voting tomorrow, but you're going to have to check with your local uh, county clerk to see if they're accepting early ballots as late as the 31st. They may not. Um, In which case, definitely make sure to get out and vote safely. On Tuesday, Um, your choice is your choice, but you got to have your voice in there if you want your choice to be counted. Now, I've had people ask me all this. How is it that you see the world so clearly that you can feel comfortable going online and on the air to give your viewpoint to people? And I said, look, it's really not that hard. All you have to do first is close your eyes. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Once you've done that, it's a matter of simply focusing on that and making sure that when you do look at the world, it's through the lens of your own values. At that point, you'll be ready to see the world for what it is, and all you'll have to do is...